0: This is the Green Street News, your weekly environmental health update. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts, welcome back. On the show today, it's all about sex, or to be more precise, how chemicals in our environment are impacting our ability to reproduce and grow normally. It turns out that chemicals found in millions of consumer products, chemicals that make plastic soft or hard or make fabric waterproof or saucepans nonstick, also have other properties that aren't so great. And we better do something about them soon before reproduction becomes impossible. It's all coming up on the show today. Stay with us. Okay, Patty Wood, what happened in the world of environmental health this week?
1: The people in Tom's River, where they had this tremendous childhood cancer cluster, are unhappy about the deal that was brokered by the chemical industry and the uh, EPA. Published in AP News, and it is written by Wayne Parry. It is town where childhood cancer rates rose, blasts deal over polluted site. In hindsight, it's clear that something was very wrong in this suburban town at the Jersey Shore, where many people worked at or lived near a chemical company that was flushing toxic waste into waterways and burying it in the ground. Men would come home from the plant, which made dyes and resins, and their perspiration would be the color of the dye with which they worked that day. Good Lord. Children swam in the local river, coming up for air in the midst of milky white froth that floated on the water's surface. There seemed to be fewer fish than would be expected. Some that were there appeared to be transparent, and others had sores. And children were being diagnosed with cancer at higher than normal rates. It wouldn't be until many years later that the truth would come out. Seba Chemical Corp., the town's largest employer, had been flushing chemicals into the Toms River and the Atlantic Ocean and burying 47,000 drums of toxic waste in the ground. This created a plume of polluted water that has spread beyond the site into residential neighborhoods. It made the area one of America's most notorious Superfund sites, joining the list of the most seriously polluted areas in need of federally supervised cleanup. But now New Jersey has reached a settlement with the site's current owner, BASF Corp., to address damage to natural resources at the site. And residents of Tom's River, where cancer cluster is part of the local vocabulary and bottled water is the only type many will drink, are not happy with the deal, describing it as woefully insufficient.
0: So this happens a lot, that the owner of the plant changes. Right. And now you've got new people in there that didn't really create the problem in the first place, but they're saddled with the response. They're still saddled with the cleanup. Sure.
1: But this is what the problem is. It's that the cleanup is not really a cleanup So you can listen to what's going on here. The agreement commits BASF, now the corporate successor to CB Geige, to restore wetlands and grassy areas, create walking trails, boardwalks, and an elevated viewing platform, and build an environmental education center. The settlement does not do nearly enough to compensate Tom's River and its residents for the decades of pollution and illness they have endured. In 1992, Seabaggi paid 63.8 million to settle criminal charges that it illegally disposed of hazardous waste. And it and two other companies reached a 13.2 million dollar settlement with 69 families whose children were diagnosed with cancer.
0: 13 million dollars for 69 families is not a lot. I think if you do the math, that comes out to a little over a hundred thousand dollars per family. Yeah. For kids with cancer.
1: Right. Or for the loss of their life. Yeah. Right. Many residents say that they won't go anywhere near the site even after remediation work is completed. One man who attended a public hearing on the settlement said he won't even drive past the site with his car window rolled down.
0: Can't blame him, you know, really for the years and years of of misery and and pain that those people have gone through.
1: And they don't trust them to have cleaned it up properly. And that might be justified And might not be.
0: 47,000 drums of toxic material buried underground. Right. You know, that stuff seeps through the the soil very slowly, Mm -hmm. you know, into aquifers and into drinking water supplies, and it's, Mm -hmm. what a mess. Mm -hmm. Okay, Okay. Mm -hmm. well, that was happy news. What else you got?
1: (laughs) This is also one that's really important to me, and it's about giving babies a phthalate-free start in the NICU units, right? We have these premature babies, and we're just using all these plastic materials that contain chemicals that are impacting the health of those brand new babies who are already struggling this is actually published in environmental health news written by ashley james and the title is what will it take to give babies a phthalate free start in the world since the late 1960s research has shown that a plastic additive in polyvinyl chloride or pvc leaches from medical devices, and is toxic to multiple organs, especially for premature infants. Despite more than two decades of evidence, advocacy, and education around the issue, PVC products containing this harmful phthalate chemical still dominate the neonatal intensive care unit, or NICU, environment. Feeding tubes, fluid bags, syringes, respiratory support tubes, intravenous lines, catheters, incubators. This is only a short list of the PVC medical supplies that assist in everything from eating to breathing to sleeping for premature infants in NICU. The majority of these devices contain DEHP, a class of chemicals called phthalates, which are used to make plastic softer and more flexible. Phthalates mimic the body's hormones and can disrupt important processes during an infant's rapid development. Scientists have linked phthalate exposure for newborn infants, also known as neonates, with several toxic endpoints, including damage to the developing brain, the liver, heart, lungs, male reproductive tract, and more.
0: We're going to be talking about this later in the show today. We have an interview with uh, Shanna Swan, mm-hmm. all, all about this exact subject about about these endocrine disrupting chemicals.
1: Well, we also did another show with Laura Vandenberg. Um, that's right. Know, called Healthcare Hooked on Plastic.
0: Yeah, that's right. She I, I was know. great. She's kind of leading the charge yeah. to get that. And, and can I just say, you've been on this for years and years. I know, the endocrine
1: disrupting. You disruptors. were on this
0: 10 years ago.
1: Oh, more than that. 20 years ago. We're not okay. that old. There is positive movement in the marketplace, with phthalate-free devices becoming increasingly available. However, cost remains an issue, and the contaminated medical devices continue to fall through regulatory cracks. While the U.S. Food and Drug Administration released a guidance document for the pharmaceutical industry on avoiding DEHP in 2012, they have yet to ban or restrict its use in medical supplies like the European Union has already done. This is despite ongoing research, advocacy, and a direct ask from members of Congress who wrote a letter to the FDA last year.
0: One of the things Laura Vandenberg brought up in our interview was the cost, was the fact that you know, the healthcare industry, which makes billions of dollars, didn't want to spend the extra money that it would cost to have those kinds of medical yeah, and devices. Yeah, I think that we looked it point.
1: up. I think that we actually looked at this a while ago, and we tried to compare the cost of a this, PVC IV tube as compared to a non-PVC IV tube, and the cost was just cents. It's, I think it it's was pennies. like eight cents.
0: Yeah, it's pennies. But in a profit world of yeah. medicine, that you know they can't afford to spend it.
1: The FDA says that DEHP is on their radar. They issued a discussion paper last year oh, for the public please. and stakeholders to comment. However, the paper does not specifically mention DEHP. <laughs> in addition, the FDA only approves devices in their final form, does not clear or approve individual materials that are used in the fabrication of medical devices. Your tax dollars
0: at work. Wow. Again, FDA is right wow. on top of it.
1: Wow, this is like frightening. Okay. Okay. What else you got? Microplastics are filling our skies, and they're even talking about them impacting climate change.
0: It's raining plastic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is from Yale University, and it's one of their publications. Recent studies reveal that tiny pieces of plastic are constantly lofted into the atmosphere. These particles can travel thousands of miles and affect the formation of clouds, which means that they have the potential to impact temperature, rainfall, and even climate change. Plastic has become an obvious pollutant over recent decades, choking turtles and seabirds, clogging up our landfills and waterways. But in just the past few years, a less obvious problem has emerged. Researchers are starting to get concerned about how tiny bits of plastic in the air, lofted into the skies from sea foam bubbles or spinning tires on the highway, might potentially change our future climate. Clouds form when water or ice condenses on seeds in the air. These are usually tiny particles of dust, sand, salt, soot, or other material thrown up by burning fossil fuels, forest fires, cooking, or volcanoes. There are plenty of these fine particles or aerosols in the sky, a lot more since the Industrial Revolution, and they affect everything from the quality of the air we breathe, to the color of our sunsets, to the number and types of clouds in our skies. Until recently, when chemists thought of the gunk in our air, plastics did not leap to mind. Concentrations were low, they thought, and plastic is often designed to be water-repellent for applications like bags or clothing, which presumably made them unlikely to seed cloud droplets. But in recent years, studies have confirmed not only that microscopic pieces of plastic can seed clouds, sometimes powerfully, but they also travel thousands of miles from their source.
0: I don't know. What, it, what, do I, what do you say about this? This is astonishing. It's frightening. And we have more plastic every single day. We're just adding to the burden.
1: Yeah. I mean, and talk about burden. The global annual production of plastics has skyrocketed from 2 million tons in 1950 to more than 450 million tons Mm. today. Despite growing concerns about this waste accumulating in the environment, production is ramping up rather than slowing down. Oil companies are building up their plastic production capacity as the demand for fossil
0: fuel declines. Well, I mean, I'm all for colorful sunsets, can I say? But, you know, if they're being made possible by plastic particles in the air, That's a whole different story.
1: We are looking at the sources of them And they include roads, which is tire wear, right? Agricultural dust and oceans. On roadways, tires and brakes hurl microplastics into the air. And the plastic winds up in agricultural dust, in part from plastics used on farm fields, and in part because people toss fleece clothing into washing machines. Mm -hmm. The wastewater from these washing machines flows to treatment plants that separate solids from liquids, and half of the resulting biosolids get sent to farms for use as fertilizer.
0: Where they get taken up by the plants and then we eat them.
1: Working out exactly how much plastic is in our skies is extremely difficult. The smaller the pieces, the harder they are to identify. Studies can also be plagued by contamination. And listen to this. Walking into the lab wearing a fleece sweater, for example, skews the results with shedding plastic microfibers coming off the sweater. Wow, right? Unbelievable. Right, right, right. right. The numbers floating around today are likely to be significantly underestimated, and that's really important to know.
0: All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. The human body's endocrine system is a miracle of chemistry. It's a complex system of glands throughout the body that secrete tiny amounts of hormones at very specific times to control how we grow and function. No one really completely understands how it works, but we know enough to know it's delicate and finely calibrated, and when it goes out of whack, bad things can happen. Among other things, the endocrine system plays a large role in our sexual development and in reproduction. An imbalance of hormones at critical times in development can throw the whole system off, making reproduction virtually impossible. Over the past hundred years, scientists working with chemicals in their laboratories have found that certain combinations of chemicals can do wondrous things, like make clothing water repellent, or sofas stain resistant, or frying pans easy to clean. But the chemical signature of these new compounds can also mimic that of our own hormones, causing confusion within our bodies as normal processes are interrupted by the presence of these man-made chemicals which we get from chemical residues in food, air, and water. This confusion can lead to some very serious consequences, especially for young couples trying to start a family.
2: Right now, it's more difficult to reproduce, and we see that in many, many ways with declines in total fertility rate, which of course has other causes. And we also see that in the increase in use of assisted reproduction. We see that in the increase of use of testosterone supplementation by younger and younger men. We see that by women having more miscarriages and having fewer eggs left at the end of their reproductive cycle. So there's many things that support the concern that we may be making it harder and harder to reproduce.
0: That's Dr. Shanna Swan, one of the world's leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists and a professor of environmental medicine and public health at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. Dr. Swan began her young life as a child actress, then decided instead to pursue a career in mathematics. She earned her master's in biostatistics and then her PhD in statistics and logic. Her new book, Countdown, chronicles how our modern world is threatening sperm counts, altering male and female reproductive development, and imperiling the future of the human race.
2: If we're going to change this in any other way than just banking everything and relying on it when we need it. We're going to have to clean up the environment and do something about, you know, these things that are driving down our fertility and our sperm count.
0: So, what are these things? It's extremely hard to pinpoint the cause of a phenomenon like a drop in fertility. After all, like all of nature, humans are constantly evolving. Maybe this is just a case of genetics at work.
2: I don't believe that genetics is playing a major role in this decline we're seeing. And the reason is, it's too fast. It's 50% in 50 years. Just I wanna stress that because 1% per year doesn't sound like much. 1%, who cares? If you think about 1% per year over 50 years, that's cutting sperm count in half, which is what we saw. It went from 99 in 1973 to 47 in 2011, right? That's 39 years, a drop of 52%, more than 1% per year. So this kind of change does not happen that quickly due to evolution.
0: If it's not genetics, then it's either lifestyle or something in the environment that's causing this problem, something that's interfering with normal development. Your environment is
2: very broad. It has to do with your lifestyle, your stress level, your BMI, your um, smoking, alcohol, and on and on and on. Some of these might be affected themselves by endocrine disruptors and probably are, but there are also things that are not and, and these might be having to do with matters of choice or and so on. But leaving those aside, you have the chemicals. Now, among the chemicals, Let's just also be clear that it's not just endocrine-disrupting chemicals that can be active here. Um, For example, lead is known to decrease sperm count. But the chemicals that I was most concerned about are the chemicals that can affect our body's hormones, particularly the sex steroids, because I'm talking about reproduction. So my particular area of concern is the chemicals that can affect our body's hormones, the so-called endocrine disrupting chemicals that I went to study with that committee back in 1994, they're raising their head here as important causes of this decline, but not the only cause.
0: There are tens of thousands of chemicals being used today in food production and consumer products that we ingest, absorb, or inhale every day. Some, like cosmetics, can enter the bloodstream directly. If they're in our food or in the air, they can linger around inside our body, causing all kinds of trouble.
2: We don't even know all the endocrine disruptors in the environment. I mean, the number is staggering, and it's increasing all the time we're just starting to explore for example endocrine disrupting effects of medications you know (laughs) but but the classical ones we can classify i think in, in the following ways so there's the plasticizers and those are the phthalates which is actually where i spent most of my time working the bisphenols and by the way the phthalates are the chemicals that make plastic soft just roughly speaking, and the bisphenols make it hard. So that's one way to distinguish them. And then we have the chemicals that we are all familiar with and were perhaps the first recognized was the pesticides. And these are still with us and obviously still you know, very endocrine active. And then there are what's coming more and more attention to this group, which is the PFAS. So the, the, the PFAS chemicals, are the chemicals that I like to think of as barriers, particularly um, in Teflon, for example, they're nonstick coatings. There are coatings on our clothing, which is flame retardants. There are coatings on paper. So these are just everywhere. All of these chemicals are everywhere. And I should also mention flame retardants, which are very, very important endocrine disruptors and ubiquitous as well. So if you look at this, these five, you know, groups of chemicals, you're coming into contact with these every day and they're unavoidable. And here's kicker: picker. We don't know when we're exposed there. Most of them are not labeled and most of them are not regulated. And I like to think of this as some giant dystopian experiment in which we are the subjects. And we haven't been asked about this, but we're, we're, they're being tested on us. And only when there's a signal that there's been harm uh, that we start to pay attention to a particular chemical or class of chemicals. Otherwise they just go along doing their business, uh, which is disrupting our hormones, uh, in the background um, all the time uh, without our knowledge.
0: One source of exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals is the food we eat. It's not that the food was made with these chemicals. It's often that the chemicals are seeping into the food from the packaging we use. Many people buy their water in plastic bottles. Their vegetables come wrapped in plastic. Even the pizza box that comes to the door has chemicals in the cardboard to prevent the grease from seeping through. These all have the ability to interfere with normal development.
2: My focus has been on phthalates. are chemicals, as I said, that make plastic soft and flexible, but they're also added to personal care products because they retain scent and color. And they're also um, increase absorption. So they make that cream go into your hand. And so everything that smells, everything that's fragranced is going to contain phthalates or another class called phenols, which are much less studied and possibly less toxic, but certainly concerning. And the, these chemicals, have the phthalates have the ability to lower the body's testosterone and chemicals that can do this are called anti-androgens because androgens mean testosterone and other similar hormones and so where i focus because my effort has been in reproduction particularly i look at what can happen to the reproductive system when a woman, particularly a pregnant woman, is exposed to these
0: chemicals. So here's where it gets really interesting and really problematic. An exposure to some of these chemicals at just the wrong time, like certain points in a pregnancy, can have lifelong impacts on the developing fetus.
2: When the fetus is developing, it's rapidly evolving, changing, and those changes can be impacted by minute amounts of chemical. We know that from laboratory studies, in vitro studies, and human studies. And, and so just to say what they do to this developing fetus, if the developing fetus is a male, they will decrease the masculinization, that is reaching the male typical array, if you will, of size of the genitals. So here's the chain. Mother's exposed to phthalates, maybe in her food, that's most likely, maybe in her cosmetics, and goes into her body. They're water soluble. They get into the fetus. The fetus is very early in pregnancy. All these systems are developing. And the particular development of the male genitals requires a certain amount of testosterone. So if the mother's passing on something that lowers testosterone, that doesn't completely happen. And the male is less completely masculinized. And and that consequence is enormous for many things, including our story on sperm decline, right? Because when you do that, you knock down his testosterone, his genitals are smaller. And then it also affects his brain, by the way. But the critical thing here is how does this relate to sperm count? And how it relates to sperm count is that those boys with a smaller genital, something that I call, and others call the anogenital distance, it's a measurement of how big the perineum is. That distance, if it's smaller than expected for the boy's size, will mean when he's an adult, and we've shown this in studies in adults, he'll have a lower sperm count. He'll have a lower sperm count, he'll be less likely to have a child, he'll be more likely to have testicular cancer, he'll be more likely to have genital defects. So that early hit of phthalates, while he's in the womb, plays out over his entire lifespan. And this is a model, if you will, for all endocrine disruption, when it's hitting The developing fetus early in pregnancy it has effects throughout the lifespan so when i think about who has to be protected i say first and foremost the fetus by keeping these things out of the bodies of pregnant women and by the way the male as well has to keep these things out in the 70 days before he conceives the pregnancy. That's hard. You never know when, when you're going to conceive that pregnancy baby, you know, you're not, if you're not particularly working hard at it. So in some sense, adult males are always at risk of impacting the development of the fetus through his exposures.
0: So what does the future look like? How can we educate the public and force the politicians to make some changes to protect people from exposures that can cause lifelong problems and even prevent reproduction?
2: First of all, this is going to get more visibility now as more and more people are affected. For example, I just talked to three urologists yesterday. They talked about the rapidly increasing rate of erectile dysfunction in young men. Men are going to notice this, they're going to care about this, their partners are going to care about this, and they are. When couples can't have children, they are going to open their eyes and say what's going on here. So hopefully it's not going to take 20 years. We don't really have 20 years. That's almost a whole generation. So, you know, things get sped up, like the vaccination was produced much faster than anyone ever thought it would. I think we can do this faster too, but we have to talk about it. And we can't just talk about it in our academic corridors. Um, We can't just talk about it at meetings and scientific journals. I think we need to get The people who are going to be most affected looking ahead 10, 15, 20 years, and that's the young people. We have to get the young people putting this on TikTok. We have to get them putting that on all the socials. We have to have them, you know, blasting this out in a way that we haven't done so far. I think our messaging has not been effective, honestly. And I think that I'm working to change that. Um, and that's one of my goals now coming up is how do we get this message out to people who can influence the influencers and ultimately the politicians.
0: Dr. Shanna Swan, epidemiologist and professor of environmental medicine and public health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City and the author of Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Shanna Swan, our engineer, Reggie Johnson, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our webmaster, Allison Dunn, our marketing director, Patricia Bridges, and especially you, our loyal listeners who make this show possible. If you're listening to this podcast, please follow Green Street News and tell your friends. Patty and I will be back next week with another show. Thanks for listening.